Welcome to the Friday edition of Unexpected Points. I have my best bets for the weekend. I'm going to review the Thursday night Bagel City big win for the Patriots and try to give a good and bad for the Patriots going forward, a team I was a little bit skeptical of. And of course, we're going to get into some other stop topics and a little bit of stick to sports on what's gone on recently with people's reaction to different studies out there in the world of COVID, of course. Um, let's get into it right now. Unexpected points. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in here. Um, those of us who stuck through last night, congratulations. We got to see a game with Three interceptions from three different quarterbacks all on the same team. Not something that happens very often. And for those who follow along in the YouTube feed for unexpected points here, you saw that I posted that when the line moved to seven from six and a half, that I said, okay, I'm going to lock this in as a best bet. Then it moved back to six and a half after that. So we captured a little bit of closing line value there. Um, but when Cordero Patterson was called, was was out for the game, then it went back to being, to being seven again. So we didn't really have any value there. And I don't think that CPAT uh, Patterson is that valuable to a team. But let's face it, this is a team that is really really, really needing some dynamic threats down the field other than Kyle Pitts. And I'm not sure if it was a coverage issue with Belichick and what they were doing to take away the top weapon for the Falcons as Billy Billy loves to do. Billy Belichick loves to do that, very well known for doing that. So I'm not sure if that was the issue, but man, just not a whole lot going on. And of course, Matt Ryan was getting pummeled in the pocket, did not have a lot of time to pass. If you look at the numbers here, he was getting pressure 40% of the time. Uh, quick pressure, so those are pressures that, fast pressures, those are pressures that I rank as being in 2.5 or fewer seconds, over 20% of his dropback, so it was it was ugly. But I really think the the thing to concentrate on here, was talking when we're talking about this Thursday night game, is really more of the Pat side of the equation. Because we're going to want to know, is this team for real? This is a team that a lot of people were putting into that has a chance to win category. I broke down on the Tuesday pod how they're clearly in a second or maybe even third tier in the AFC if you want to put the Bills alone in their own tier because their probability of winning the conference is so much higher than the other teams. So it's really the Bills are up top. Then it is the Chiefs, the Titans, the Ravens next after that. And then next... Then we go into the Patriots and some other teams. So they're obviously going to get a little bit of bump here and move up a bit more based upon this victory. But they weren't that different than the Chargers going into this as far as their probability. So let's 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 crank through the numbers here. Of course, we saw the score, big 25 to 0. It closed at 7, as I mentioned. So that closing line value that would have been pretty decent um, ended up going away because it was off of a key number, off of a key number of 7 there. The adjusted score I have, and again, I'm going to break down what are the adjusted scores because they're a huge component to what I do, not only in the reviews, but gauging team strength going forward. So the adjusted scores, they look a success rate to a higher degree than the actual results by EPA per play. And success rate I define as whether or not you have added expected points on that particular play. If, they, if it's a positive number on a play, then it's a successful play. If it's zero or a negative number on the play, it is an unsuccessful play. And you look at the percentage of the time you're successful or not. And that is important to look at because in a single game sample, in a smaller sample, that really is more determinant of how well a team played. And the outlier type of plays, whether it's a huge negative play like a pick six or an interception or a fumble that doesn't happen that often or a huge positive plays where you break a tackle and take it for 80 yards, while those can be more sustainable for certain teams versus others over a course of a season. In one particular game, it's not as. It's not as sustainable. There's more luck involved in those types of plays. So 
by boosting the effect of success rate, uh, I'm getting a more of a stable number as part of this. And it's, and, but, but I am bringing in those outlier plays. It's just I cut their weighting about in half versus what they are in the actual score. And then, of course, it's cutting the weighting of special teams, a lot of special teams plays, depending upon how fluky they are here. In this game, we saw a missed field goal where you normally don't have a missed field goal and you have to, you know, just all made field goals on the other side for the Patriots, even some, some longer ones. So special teams is going to be is going to be affected a little bit there. And then it's also going to have some effect on some of the more random turnovers. And then we bring in PFF data. We bring in turnover-worthy plays. We bring in drops and other things to, to make adjustments to bring it back up. So long-winded way of saying success rate is a little bit more important here than versus a normal game. So let's start by talking about what were the success rates for these teams last night. So the Patriots, they had a success rate of 46% versus 36% for the Falcons. And if we think about those, if you want contextual to say, like, what percentile type of games are those? Well, for success rate, that would be about a 57th percentile game for the Patriots and a 16th percentile for the Falcons. So poor, poor game for the Falcons and a middling game for the Patriots. And then if we look at what they actually did in their EPA per play numbers, the Falcons, negative 0.6 EPA per play. Really, really bad. This is lower than the first percentile in this game. It was that bad. And the Patriots were only in the 23rd percentile because they had the interception, because they did not convert on some third downs and some other things. So they also had a bad game from a results standpoint, a little bit better from success rate. So that's why... When you look at my adjusted scores that I mentioned, everything goes in there. Instead of 25 to 0, it ends up being 25 to 12 is how it, how it goes out there. Remember, the Falcons had the ball inside of the Patriots 20 multiple times in this game, and they came away with zero points. So that gives an idea of why the adjusted score is so much higher than the actual score here of, of zero. Okay, cutting through here, the Patriots, you know, 50% pass percentage, so that's what they wanted to do. They didn't want to have to pass it too much there, which completely makes sense. Um, they didn't run the ball well either. If we break down the success rates and the EPA per play by play type, the success rate for the Patriots, they had a middling run attack also. Poor numbers for the Falcons, no surprise there. And as far as their drop back, their drop back success rate was pretty good. And I think that goes by, you'll see the completion percentage numbers for Mac Jones. I saw those getting hyped up on here. And let me see what he had here. 85% completion percentage. So whenever you complete 85% of your passes, yeah, it's going to look pretty good. He had eight yards per attempt. So again, that was pretty good. And his drop back success rate here in this game was about 55%. And that translates into about a 70th percentile. But again, his EPA number was down because of the big interception in particular that he had in that game by A.J. Terrell. Um, again, the pressure numbers were just enormous for the Patriots in this, in this game. 47% pressure rate. So Matt Ryan or and et al. and company were pressured on nearly half of their dropbacks. And again, the fast pressure, which is really, really important, 23%. That's a big number. Um, and the blitz rate, only 15% here. Now, the Falcons actually got a 15% fast pressure rate versus a 29% or 22% total pressure rate, meaning when they did get pressure, which wasn't nearly as often, but when they did get pressure, it was fast. That's a high fast pressure rate. But they blitzed they blitzed at a 40% rate versus only a 15% rate for the Patriots. So they got pressure, but they really had to give up a lot on the back end in order to do that. It wasn't something where they're able to generate pressure with their front four. Uh, other numbers in this game, I mean, let's look at some of the, the PFF numbers on here. Uh, Mac Jones had a 70 passing grade versus a 61 for Matt Ryan. Wasn't a lot to talk about here. Go into the receiving yeah, I mean, you just wish you could get more from Kyle Pitts. He was, he did run 31 routes out of their 36 dropbacks. He was targeted five times for three catches for 29 yards. Now, if you're playing in, uh, you know, air yard fantasy leagues, which don't exist, but the, the focus that we have on air yards, geez, you, you, you would think that it did. 
Um, he had some passes down the field that were thrown to him. He just was not able to corral them or to get anything going. Uh, Russell Gage was the most successful receiver, but he didn't even get 50 yards. And then if you go down to what the Patriots did, yeah, it was all over the place. They really spread the ball out. No receiver there had more than 42 yards, and that would be Kendrick Bourne, who was four targets, four receptions, and everything else was spread out there. Uh, Going forward, what's some interesting things to think about, especially from a fantasy perspective? Well, let's look at the Ramondre Stevenson, Damian Harris. I mean, a very powerful backfield, both of those guys. Both of them did extremely well, and in fact, Damian Harris had four forced missed tackles, whereas Stevenson only had one, although he had a bunch on a play that didn't end up counting because he had three uh, on plays where there were penalties for the Patriots. So if you count those in there, he also had four missed tackles. And if you would have counted that play, again, that there was a hole down the middle. So if you want to count it, go ahead. If you count that play, then Stevenson would have had 13 attempts, 97 yards, 75 of those 97 yards after contact, 7.5 yards per carry. But, you know, Harris, no slouch. 56 yards on 10 attempts, 5.6 yards per carry, if you even count the plays where there where there was a holding call, although none of his were, were penalized. And, you know, what are you going to do with these guys going forward, I think is an interesting question. Again, this is more of a fantasy question than anything else. Stevenson did have a target, uh, and so did Damian Harris. So neither one of those guys were targeted that often. Two targets for Brandon Bolden. So they're really going to split the early down work, which could make neither one of them really that valuable in fantasy going forward. But let's talk more about the Patriots. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to gauge this one because the Falcons look so pathetic on offense. The Patriots had a very, very easy schedule so far year to date. If we look at the Patriots going into this game, and this is before you're playing against a really, really bad Falcons team, they had the, the Patriots had the 31st most difficult schedule. So the second easiest schedule so far. And it does say the fifth remaining schedule, and that includes this easy game against the um, against the Falcons. So I think the key is, okay, how are the Patriots going to hold up the rest of the season? This is going to be really, really interesting. They play the Titans, the Bills. Then they have a bye week, which is, I think it's good to have a bye week at the end. But then again, Colts, Bills again, Jaguars, okay. And then... The Miami Dolphins, who, you know, may not be a, a walkover here. So then other than the Jacksonville game, these are all games against teams that are legit playoff contenders. And the Bills, two two of the games against what is the best team in the AFC, according to my numbers, according to a lot of different power rankings out there. So this is a little bit of a tough schedule going forward for the Patriots. It's good that they've uh, got all these wins ahead. It's good that they've been able to rack up wins against poor opponents to this point, as I mentioned, having the second easiest schedule. But their schedule is going to be a little bit more difficult going forward unless there's some sort of catastrophic injury for the Bills or or something like that. But we will see that going forward. That's something to look out for. Um, A little bit lower on the Patriots. I'm not quite sure that offense has what it takes to get it going. But if you can play like that on defense and if you can continue to get turnovers, which they are doing over and over and over again, Again, then they have a good shot this season. Okay, before I get into some more stuff, let me just remind everyone, promo code UNEXPECTED at PFF. Get all of the great content that I produce for fantasy and for quote-unquote real football. Get all of the different green line services that we have for betting and our power rankings, which give you not only the strength of schedule numbers that I'm quoting, but also give you the point differential, the point strength we believe of every team on a neutral field. You can get all of that promo code unexpected, pff.com. And I think this is going to run out pretty soon. So this is your time to get it right now, get it for the rest of the season. Uh, Also get some showdown content, which I put out a showdown piece, which is the single game DFS contest. I put out a piece on that three times a week. It's going to be more often once we have games on Saturdays also. It's going to be for every single playoff game, single game contest. You pick six players, and they've been very successful, people who have been uh, following this, the recommendations I have because I have ownership and uh, optimal projections. You can compare the two and find some, some value players there. Okay, um, let's get to a little bit of my stick-to-sports rant here, uh, previous before we get into the best bets. But again, these rants... While they may seem superficially 
you know, superfluous, like unnecessary to what I'm doing here as a football analyst. I think they pin in a lot into biases, groupthink, other things that come into play. I've discussed that before. Um, so this one comes into it a little bit more. So this is this is a COVID stuff. So I know COVID, everyone's got their big opinions on COVID. I'm a evidence-based guy. I'm pro-vaccine uh, because of because of that. So when I'm talking here and I'm talking about some stuff that could be potentially interpreted as talking points for people who are less worried about COVID or maybe anti-vaccine or vaccine skeptical, I don't really care if that can be used as a talking point. And that's, that, that, that's the big picture here, is that I got some feedback when I shared a study about long COVID and about the difficulty finding any evidence for there actually being a phenomenon of long COVID. Um, there's pushback here of like, well, what, you know, that's going to be on Fox News and Tucker Carlson will be talking about it. Like, I, you know, you can only think about that so much. If you're presenting things in a bad way, if you're presenting things illogically, if you're presenting things with a slant, if you're being inflammatory and not giving a full picture, if you're not being fair, yeah, if you're doing any of those things, you have to be concerned about how your words are being used. But if you're concerned about bad faith, faith actors using something you've done in bad faith, guess what? You know, bad faith actors are going to bad faith. That's what they're going to do. You can't be concerned with that. You can't be mad at other people for trying to find the truth if their, their objective their pursuit of the truth can be misused by other people who are going to misuse something else anyway, right? We're not changing people's opinions on here. If you don't give them this piece, this thing that can be used as bad faith, they're going to find something else to use. So let, let, me, let me talk about what I'm actually talking about. That probably would be helpful for everyone to figure out what's going on here. So there was a study um, by the JAMA, I don't know what JAMA, I have to, I wish I knew what that actually stood for. It's a medical association, J-A-M-A, Internal Medicine. It's a peer-reviewed medical journal, uh, clinically relevant research. And they did a study about long COVID. And I think the interesting thing here is the phenomenon of long COVID is fraught because it is something that people want to talk about because I think there is a high degree of uncertainty about what the long-term effects are going to be of a novel virus. Totally makes sense. But it's also something where it's become a talking point in this debate where if one side presents the superficially low death rate, let's say, for COVID, especially for younger people, then the other side will say, well, what about long COVID? It's, it's a way to kind of what about it? So then because of that, there's going to be this weird incentive for people to play up long COVID, whether consciously or not, because it is a motivating factor in getting people to take COVID more seriously, where the reality is people should be taking COVID seriously just based upon the factual numbers, just based upon the facts. You don't need extra things to play up to do it. So anyway, so this study Whereas looking at protracted symptoms, a.k.a. what people would call long COVID, the only thing that they could find as having a real basis and evidence for is the loss of taste and smell. And that's something that I would not have doubted because, like, I don't think that's going to be a psychological disorder. And it seems to be very clearly related to the disease. And it does seem to be something that comes back over time. Now, complications with breathing or things like that, of course, if you have pneumonia or if you have... Um, a virus in your lungs, you're going to have some issues there. But we're talking about some of these other things that people have talked about. Uh, long degrees of brain fog, uh, different types of pains, uh, you know, almost like a depress depression, almost like a chronic fatigue syndrome, which is another thing that is just amorphous. Like you can't really pin down an actual clinical diagnosis for something like that. So what they did here is, and this is different than other studies which have shown the evidence of long COVID, because most of these studies that are showing the evidence of long COVID, it's all self-reported. So someone's saying, I had COVID and now I'm going to talk, and now I have long COVID. Well, the problem with that is if there is a component, a psychological component here, if there is a self-fulfilling type of component where you're worried about COVID or you're worried about death, you're worried about long COVID, you start to notice these symptoms more. Um, that can become a problem. So what, what they have here is a more comprehensive study where 
they are testing people for their antibodies to confirm whether or not they actually have COVID. So you can break people into basically two different buckets. One, people who think they had COVID, and one, people who do not think they had COVID. And what you find is it, there is a strong relationship between long COVID symptoms or the, 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 the thought that people are having long COVID symptoms and thinking you had COVID versus not thinking you had COVID. The problem is when you divide that bucket of I think I had COVID into those who had COVID and those who actually didn't have COVID because there are people who think they had COVID, but then you test them for antibodies and they don't. Um, what you find is the people who don't have the antibodies, so they did not have COVID, but think they had COVID, they're having just as strong long COVID symptoms as the people who actually did have COVID. And again, if you, if you look into the bucket of people who do not think they had COVID, you test them. Some of them have antibodies. Some of them actually did have COVID but didn't know it. Uh, other people did not have COVID, and they were correct. They did not have COVID. Those people are about the same. Their, their incident of long COVID is the same. There's, they're not experiencing it at a very high level, if at all. So actually having COVID or not is not really related to the long COVID symptoms as much as thinking you had COVID. Now, there can be some conflating facts here of like maybe if you have a worse case of COVID, that's why there's more of a, of a thing. I mean, they control for some of this, but I can see why there is some concerns about the, the potential evidence of this. I get that. But I think what we have to do is we don't have to dismiss long COVID as a thing, but we should be very careful with how we report on it because if we have something like this, something which may have a strong psychological component uh, because people are worried about this. People are very, very scared about the potential for this happening. When that happens, we have to be careful how we report and we talk about it because you could actually be causing more long COVID by talking about it more and, and, and playing it up as a definite real thing and perpetuating research, which is not, which is all self-reported research, which is not actually testing whether or not these people even had COVID in the first place. Uh, and I think that's the key. You don't want to go out and give people a psychological disorder, potentially a psychological disorder, or have them worried about something to a higher degree in order to win an, an argument about something else like getting vaccinated. So that's my point going forward. Go for the truth. Go for what is important. But you can hedge, of course, and you can talk about the possibility of something, but you have to talk about it in a way that's responsible and accurate. Um, this actually goes back to one other thing that I wanted to bring up, and that was a lot of reporting that we saw on uh, a WNBA player last season who, um, who did not get a COVID waiver during the pandemic because of her Lyme disease. And it was Elena Del Don. I don't really, I don't really know that much about her. But I thought this was an interesting, another interesting case study here. And a lot of people wanted us to be more sympathetic and to give people more waivers and to be nicer about uh, the potential for players to set out if they did not want to participate. And I think that's good. I think that's fine. I think that's great. Um, but when it came to this stuff about talking about Lyme disease, the problem is, and this was not really talked about in the reporting nearly enough, is there is Lyme disease, which is uh, a tick bites you. You have, a, you have an actual, um, you know, bacteria disease. You treat it with antibiotics and then it's gone. And there is this other thing like chronic or longer Lyme disease, which is what this player is saying she has. Um, the problem is there is no like clinical diagnosis for this. And many of the articles when they wrote about it did not really mention that fact. The reason that the WNBA was not giving a waiver for this is because it's not recognized as a quote unquote real thing. Now it could be a real thing, but the problem is there's no evidence for it. You can't test someone and find out they have it. Um, it's very similar to, again, people who have chronic fatigue syndrome, where people have some sort of, you know, multi-compartment pain uh, syndrome where you can't really pin down what it's actually from. So there's tons and tons of reporting on Lyme disease. There's tons and tons of reporting on this person having Lyme disease when this is not an actual clinical diagnosis. And again, it's something that my concern is when there's all of these stories out there about 
Lyme disease is part of this is we're kind of scaring people who get Lyme disease. My son got Lyme disease. Uh, there's a lot of ticks all over the place now. And because uh, there's deers all over the place. There's a deer infestations in a lot of different places. So when someone gets Lyme disease, if we have all this information out there saying, oh, look at these people with chronic Lyme disease and chronic Lyme disease is ruining the rest of their lives where, where we don't even know if this is a real thing. We don't have an actual clinical definition of that. What we do have a clinical definition is you take antibiotics and the Lyme disease goes away, right? We do have that. That's what happens in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases. And you have these other people where they're having chronic problems and then they look back and they're like, oh yeah, you know, five years ago I had Lyme disease. Maybe that's the problem. And then there's people who work in that industry now who are not, you know, part of the larger, broader medical establishment, but are working in that to tell people, oh, you have Lyme disease. That's the problem. So if we start telling people that getting a Lyme disease is going to be a much more worrying thing for parents and for kids than it needs to be, it could even make people think that they're going to have these chronic problems where we don't really know that it's actually a thing. And again, it's like in the in the effort to play on people's worries, play on people's longer term problems, and then in this case, when it came to this WNBA player, play on the you know larger war of you know, players versus owners versus establishment versus how seriously are we treating COVID, we are not presenting the situation and the evidence in a way that is responsible, in my mind, that can help these, not only the players going forward and give them an accurate thing, but to help all of us going forward not have any additional problems, self-fulfilling psychological problems that we do not need to have for these diseases that are questionable. Okay, that was a that was a very strange not stick to sports rant, but again, relates to sports and, and the fact of you know don't argue or play up evidence on your side. Basically, let's be fair, let's be accurate as we as best we can, no matter who may benefit from this evidence. Okay, let's get another uh, sponsor before I get into the old best bets for the week. It's a little bit thin. That's another reason why I wanted to put out that Falcons bet, which completely flopped. But luckily for those who just listen to the podcast here and don't don't see on YouTube, you did not see that. Um, let's talk about Manscaped. Perfect, you know, Lyme disease, Manscaped. Easier to check for ticks, probably, uh, on this one. So long, Manscaped just launches new products, including their Ultra Premium Body Wash and a two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. It's time to give yourself or someone who needs it the gift of beautiful skin, hair, and balls. I skipped that last time, but I'm going to go for it this time, uh, this holiday season. Go to manscaped.com and use promo code PFF for 20% off and free shipping. This week, we are giving away multiple performance package 4.0s. Rate and review the podcast, leave your email, and we will choose winners at the end of this week. I'm not sure if I saw any so far, but the reviews take a while to get up there on Apple. Inside the performance package 4.0, you will find the signature Lawnmower 4.0. It's good we have uh, synergy there between the 4.0s. This electric trimmer has proprietary advanced skin-safe technology to reduce cuts. It's also waterproof, so you can use it in the shower. Their two-in-one shampoo and conditioner is part of this. And tis the season load up on Manscaped products. So for yourself, your dad, your brother, your friends, your acquaintances, everyone, get the best gift of all, or one of the best gifts. I'm not going to say the best gift of all. That seems a little... Seems a little presumptuous. The Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. 20% off free shipping with code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off free shipping, pff.com. And one more I should hit here before we get into the best bets because it's such a natural uh, lead in here, and that's DraftKings. Whether it's football, I'm sorry, uh, football fans ready to score some free bets, $1. Bet $1 and have a chance to score $100 in free bets when a team scores, you score. So all you need is a team to score. That's pretty easy. Uh, If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge, huge, huge cash prizes. And also, you have a shot at a million dollars with your first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet $1 on either team to score $100 in free bets. If they score, you score with promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, minimum $5 deposit and $1 wagered, one per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, so we, we I mentioned the unfortunate 
game here being the uh, the Falcons that we lost on. If we arrange by the best bets going forward, we have some favorites this time, some big favorites, which I'm a little scared, honestly, about. Um, but the one other clear best bet that I have, and hopefully this isn't too colored by the fact that Julio Jones isn't going to be there. I'm actually not even that much of a believer in the Tennessee Titans, but it is the Tennessee Titans at, oh, it's up to 10 and a half now. Oh, that's, that's a little rough. Cause I think it was 10 before, right? Um, 10 and a half. I have, I have this line being more like 13 and a half at home against the Houston Texans. I just really have an awful score for the Houston Texans. Worst team in the, in the NFL. I know that, Terod Taylor is back, but, you know, we won some money betting against them a couple of weeks ago for the fact that he's just not that good either. And this Tennessee team has been a little bit struggling offensively. They've only been about the 25th percentile as far as their efficiency the last couple of games after being in the 75th or higher percentile for the four games before that. Is it the loss of Derrick Henry, perhaps? Is it Julio Jones not being there, perhaps? Is there something else going on, maybe? Uh, They've had some harder matchups here, and they finally get a really, really easy matchup here, and I think they're going to be able to run the ball a lot better. I think uh, Dante Foreman is going to be involved in this game and should do well. He's shown some burst. I think that Ryan Tannehill will continue to do well, especially when he's not under pressure. What we've seen and the difficulty that Tennessee has had is Tannehill's been under pressure a ton of pressure, and he's getting a lot of pressure, especially on the outside. And the Texans just don't have the pass rush to really affect Ryan Tannehill in this game. So that's why I think it's going to be good. I have the line being more like I said, 13, 13 and a half versus 10 and a half. So I'm going to make this a best bet here at, at 10 and a half, despite the fact I would have really liked to have gotten that 10. But actually, let me check to see. Maybe there is still a 10 available on this one because... Um, that would be obviously much better here. Actually, there are 10s. Forget that. We're not doing 10 and a half. We're doing 10. There are plenty of 10s on here. So we're going to take the Titans minus 10 as one of our best bets here. Now, technically, when it comes to other best bets, I don't have too many that really hit over the number, but let me discuss some of these matchups. The next one that I have on here is the Chicago Bears. So I have this more of being like a three, three and a half. They are five and a half here. You can get them for six at BetMGM. So let's let's lock that in at six then. Six right now, you can get the Bears. So the Bears plus six at BetMGM. And we saw Fields play well. We saw... Um, some struggle for the Ravens now recently also. That's what's that's what I think is going to be the most surprising thing for people is that the Ravens, while they're winning and they're seen as being one of the best teams in the NFL, their team strength is maybe not quite as good as some people think. I have them as being the around the ninth best team in the NFL, so not nearly as good as as you might think. Their adjusted score differential for, for for my score is they're averaging winning by 2.5 points per game, which is good, but not great, of course. And they've had a pretty easy schedule so far, believe it or not. 28th hardest schedule to date versus the 11th hardest schedule for the Bears. And I think things are starting to turn around with Fields. And if you watch what they did in the last game against the Steelers, which I liked a lot, was that Fields... Very often, back foot hit the ground. If he did not see what was out there, he was going for it. And that is the key here for the Bears. If they gives them such a good floor in this matchup playing at home that I think they can be successful. Now, the problem will be the blitz. And I thought that Fields was going to have more problems last week dealing with the blitz against the Steelers, but it didn't end up happening. But the Ravens do have the fifth best fast pressure rate in the NFL. They're one of the heaviest blitzing teams in the NFL. So can Fields work with that? Can he diagnose it? I'm not quite sure, but I think for Jackson, he just needs to take off. And that's what's going to help him a lot. I'm not for Jackson, sorry. For Fields, he just needs to take off and that's going to help him a lot. And again, Lamar Jackson, a lot of people are hyping him up as an MVP type of candidate. I mean, 0.1 EPA per play, he's okay in that in that category, nothing great. Um, he's been at around 15th-ish in his EPA and his grade so far this year. Just hasn't been nearly as stellar as you might think 
for a player that people are hyping up as an MVP candidate. The offense has been heavily reliant upon him, so maybe that's where the MVP candidate talk comes from. But I think that the offense as a whole is not functioning that well. That's why they have to come from behind, which is being given to them as a positive. But in reality, you'd rather be playing ahead. I'd rather have the 2019 Ravens offense than the 2021 Ravens offense, hands down, you know, seven days a week and twice on Sunday. I'd rather have that offense and that running game. This running game has been very up and down. It's required Lamar Jackson to bail them out, which helps sometimes. And we also have the Bears coming off of a bye at home. It's a lot of rest. That's a lot of get healthy. That's a lot of preparation time that I just think it's going to help a lot. I mean, Baltimore has a little bit extra rest because they're coming off of the Thursday night game, but it's not nearly as impactful as the bye week is for the Bears. So I'm going to lock that in as another best bet. And those are really the only two that I have, unfortunately. For this week, the other one that is borderline is the Cleveland Browns, which is now their 11 and a half point favorites at home against the Detroit Lions. The problem with this one is, and I already bet this earlier this week, so maybe I should start, you know, tweeting out a little bit more often what I'm betting early in the week. The problem with this one is it's just moved. So this is one that opened at 10 it was, let me look at the history here. It was, you know, it moved to 11 and a half on Thursday, just yesterday. It moved up from, you know, 10, 10 and a half, uh, 11, 11 and a half. I mean, in some ways, it's not the biggest move. And if you go to unabated.com and look at some of their their trading tools, um, there's a great tool they have on here where you can calculate your closing line value. So you lose about 4% value. So it's not the biggest loss of value going from 10.5 to 11.5 because 10.5 is where this line was for most of their early week. If you're going from 10 to 11.5, you lose about 8% in value. So that's a pretty big loss. But it's actually a pretty similar loss to like moving between a 7 and a 6.5. And Even though it's 1.5 points here, it's just not as important in points there. But I'm still not going to actually recommend it at this, but I do think it's an interesting bet with people so low on the Browns and the Lions where they had an okay performance against Mason Rudolph and the Steelers. Teams could be a little bit too high on them right now. And I think that could end up being a problem uh, for this spread. And we saw, you know, the line move a lot towards the Patriots, which... Again, maybe it shouldn't move that much towards the Patriots, but their offense struggled based upon this great offensive performance for the Patriots, and we saw that regress a lot on Thursday night. I think we're going to see the opposite. I think we're going to see that Browns offense come forward, and they're really going to be able to run the ball. And Nick Chubb probably is going to be back, although he hasn't been activated off of the COVID list the last time I saw, but I don't think it's a concern either way for them playing at home against this Detroit Lions defense where no matter how much Dan Campbell is going to try to pump them up, I don't think they can really get anything going in this matchup. Okay, before I get into the rest of the games of the week with some notes on what I'm thinking on those, let's hit our last sponsor. That is Western and Southern. Whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions can help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear Chris's old, about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Now you can ask about either or both, and every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Okay, I'm going to continue to go down by... The differential I have in the spread here, uh, although, again, these, these don't quite reach the level of being best bets. So I have the Saints as being a little bit of a value here as a two-point dog at the Eagles. It is a little bit of a curious line here for the fact that the Saints were roughly similar number against Tennessee last week as they are against Philly this week. I mean, I love... Jalen Hurts, I love the Eagles. I had a nice little rant that I posted on the Twitter bot about everyone getting on the Jalen Hurts bandwagon. So I do believe in them, but I just think 
that the Saints are a fundamentally strong defense. What they can do, uh, they'll be a little bit better at shutting down the run and being able to man up on the receivers, which will cause Jalen Hurts to really have to scramble a lot. I think it can be effective scrambling, but you know sometimes that goes well, sometimes it doesn't go so well uh, in that sort of game. Another one here is I have a slight lean on the Minnesota Vikings as one and a half point underdogs against the Green Bay Packers. You could probably get a better number on that. Let me check because um, I've seen it at two and a half. So it looks like you can get, oh no, not two. You can get two, uh, although it's a little bit, it's minus 112. Um, actually, no, you can get two at Unibet. I'm not sure if I even know what Unibet is, but you can get two there. But it's mostly gone down to one and a half, which is not a big move. You know, two and a half, one and a half, who, who cares? Um, but it is interesting that it's moving towards the Vikings because I do think that's the better play there. I just don't see a big difference between these two teams. Now, maybe that's apocryphal to say, especially to people to think that the Packers are one of the best teams in the NFL. But I only have the Packers being essentially like a point better. And if you look at their adjusted score differentials, if you look at the actual way that they've played, even if you take out the Jordan Love game for the Packers, Minnesota has been the better team by about three, three and a half points per game. And they're a dog at home. Things can always go poorly on this one. It's not enough to be, again, a best bet. But if you're leaning either way on this, I think Minnesota is a sneaky good play here with a lot of people talking about the Packers and not really understanding why this isn't a bigger number since they are contenders and the Vikings are not. Um, I have a slight lean on the Buffalo Bills here. I kind of like that one. Uh, They are seven-point favorite almost universally across the board. And the Colts are just a team that's a bit overrated by my numbers. And the Bills, I don't think it was a flash in the pan that they got the offense going against the Jets. I think that's something that's been a long time coming. I think the quote-unquote too high shells that are shutting down the Mahomeses and Josh Allens of the world, it's a little bit more variance than anything else that we're really leading into anything. Now, are the Bills... As the best team in the NFL, according to my numbers, are they a great team? No, they haven't been nearly as good. Quarterback play, even generally, I mean, if you look at the top quarterbacks, whether it's by EPA per play, whether it's Stafford or Rodgers or these other, or even Mahomes, other guys, they're nowhere close to like the MVP levels that we've seen in previous seasons. So there is a bit of a ceiling when you look at bigger numbers, and the seven is a big number, despite it being at home, when you're playing a playoff caliber team. But the Colts offense is just not that good against a great, I think, legitimately great Bills defense. The Colts offense barely did anything last week against the Jaguars. If it wasn't for the blocked punt touchdown, they would have been in trouble of potentially losing that game against the Jaguars. And now you're going to go to Buffalo. Um, Carson Wentz could be in store for a couple of turnovers here. Um, And unless they can get the high end of that offense going, maybe get a big play to T.Y. Hilton, things could get difficult. So I I do kind of like Buffalo. Uh, you know what? I'm going to throw Buffalo on here as a best bet. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and put it on there at um, at minus seven, even though it's not a great number the way I like it. But just to spice things up, to have more to talk about next week, we're going to throw it in there, although it is a questionable one. So KC Dallas. I have this leaning one point towards Dallas. Uh, it is two and a half right now. And here's my big takeaway about this game, which I think is an interesting way to think about the paradigm. And I've heard people discussing, especially on the forecast with with, um, the PFF forecast podcast with my friends and colleagues, George Jahuri and Eric Eager, discussing the Dak versus Mahomes. And they're saying that Dak is playing better than Mahomes this year and is right there with Mahomes as a quarterback. Eh, I I still lean to Mahomes a little bit more than that. And... I think with this number, now two and a half is not, again, it's between the three, so it's not a huge deal when you're favoring KC. But if you assume that home field advantage is is probably not that many points, it's not two and a half points, I don't think, especially when we've seen teams have virtually no advantage at home over the last couple of seasons. So KC is seen as being a better neutral field team than the Dallas Cowboys, right? So when we think about quarterbacks versus each other how should we think about that well I would say let's break down the other components of the teams let's say Cowboys defense versus Kansas City Chiefs defense 
I think it's pretty obvious the Cowboys defense is playing a lot better. They're generating a lot more pressure. Now, some of that is based upon turnovers and what they've been able to do there, which isn't the most sustainable thing. But Kansas City still is projecting as one of the worst defenses in the NFL. Okay, so that you look at that and you say, okay, we're going to lean Dallas pretty heavily if you're just going to base it upon the defense. Let's think about offensive line. Who has a better offensive line, the Dallas Cowboys or with Tyron Smith coming back? The Dallas, I believe, coming back. Dallas Cowboys or the Kansas City Chiefs? I think I'm leaning pretty heavily towards the Dallas Cowboys here, despite the fact that the Chiefs invested so much in that team this offseason. I'm still going to lean that direction. Uh, okay, let's think about the last, well, think about running running backs. I know they don't matter, but if they did matter, are you going to put Darrell Williams as being, Darrell Williams and Jarek McKinnon and Derek Gore and I don't think CEH, but even if CEH is in there, go ahead and throw him in there. I'm not taking those guys over uh, Tony, our man Tony Pollard, who I'll list first, and Ezekiel Elliott. But again, they don't matter that much, but I think there is somewhat of a lean to Dallas there. And then lastly, let's look at the weapon tree on as far as tight ends and wide receivers. I think a lot of people would say that they would rather have, excuse me, I had to stifle a sneeze there, that they would rather have the Cowboys with Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb and Michael Gallup and Dalton Schultz, who's playing well. No, I would not. I, I'm still not going to, you know, I'm not in the Kelsey is washed camp or Tyreek Hill has been solved. I still rather take Hill and Kelsey, despite the fact that the void that they have beyond that is just enormous. And Nicole Hardman can play well sometimes, but just like a head case out there who's not really reliable for them. I'm still taking the Chiefs, but but either way, it's close, right? If there's any team that can compete with the Chiefs as far as that offensive talent is concerned, can compete with Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, it is the Dallas Cowboys. So we really have everything either being extremely close in a wash or leaning towards Dallas, and yet still, outside of the quarterback we're talking about here, and yet still, Kansas City is favored by more than what you'd expect if the two teams were equal, equal on a neutral field. They're favored by more than that being at home. For that reason, I think it is telling you that people still have faith in Patrick Mahomes, and he's still in the betting markets like the best quarterback in the NFL. If you want to fade that and you want to go for Dak Prescott, and my numbers do say you can do that if you want, although not enough, um, go for it. But I'm still in Mahomes' stand, and I still believe that he is clearly the best quarterback in the NFL for anyone who is questioning that at this point in time. Okay, next on the agenda, uh, Jacksonville versus the 49ers. It's kind of an interesting one here. I mean, my numbers have it as be more like a six-point game versus six-and-a-half, which it is. So, again, not too big of a difference, although it is kind of a key point in that area. 49ers might be a little bit overhyped coming off of last week where they weren't nearly as successful as you might have thought running the ball. They just did it with extreme volume, and Jimmy Garoppolo was converting like a madman. So this is a good one, I think, for the Jacksonville Jaguars to see if they can get anything going offensively. They run the ball pretty well. And the 49ers have not been effective stopping the run. What happened to the Rams last week is by, because of the turnovers, because of the fact that San Francisco just could not be stopped at all, just kept on marching down the field and scoring touchdowns, that just put the Rams in a really bad spot. They were unable to lean on the run. They were unable to lean on play action. I know a lot of people say, well, you need to do more play action. You need to do more running you need to help you know, use that golf playbook, as friend of the pod Benjamin Solak said for... Uh, the ringer to help with the interior offensive line that's getting killed. Well, we have to put in perspective, it's really hard to run your offense in a way that you want to dictate what you want to do offensively when the other team is scoring every single time they touch the ball. We saw it with the Browns in the past. We even saw it with the Chiefs against the Titans, where if the other team is marching down and scoring every single time that they have the ball, it's really hard to execute that type of game plan. They're going to be able to do that. Um, you know, the, the, the 49ers are going to be able to do what they want to do against Jacksonville. The question is whether Jacksonville will be able to shut down the 49ers sometimes. A defense has been playing well that held down Carson Wentz, that held down Josh Allen. 
If they can do that, then Jacksonville can lean on the running game like they want to a little bit, can lean on the read option with a very, very mobile quarterback like um, like Trevor Lawrence, and maybe they can do something in this game. So anyway, slight lean towards Jacksonville, but I wouldn't touch this either way. Uh, we have the Chargers at home against the Steelers, which I'm sure there'll be tons of Steeler fans there, despite the fact that Ben Roethlisberger is not the quarterback. I have a slight lean towards the Chargers, although at six points, it is pretty close. Um, I may have a little bit actually stronger than that lean towards towards the Chargers, but not quite enough for me to want to make a move on. And then going through the rest of the games, there's nothing that's like, that's super interesting here, I don't think. Um, I will, I am very interested to see the Seahawks-Cardinals game, despite the fact that the Seahawks at 3-6 and six are virtually dead in some people's eyes. The thing is, in the NFC, they still have, according to their implied odds, a 20-25% chance of getting into the playoffs. So they need this game, though. This is a game that the Seahawks desperately need with, we don't know if Kyler is coming back 100% for sure as of this taping. We don't know if DeAndre Hopkins is coming back 100% for sure as of this taping. But the fact that the Cardinals are a two and a half point favorite in Seattle makes me think that we, at least they think the former is coming back, that Murray is going to be back. And I'm projecting him to be back. So I have Seattle as a slight favorite over this two and a half number. I would have it more closer to three. So if you want to bet Seattle, I think that's an interesting play right at this moment for a team that really needs a win against another team that my numbers are just not quite as certain of, especially when you build in priors where I have Russell Wilson as being so much better of a quarterback than uh, Murray, not so much better, but slightly better quarterback than Kyler Murray, despite the fact that Murray's been so great this season. And the... The X factor is where is Wilson on that finger, but I do think more people are going to attribute what could have just been noise in a difficult game last week against the Packers. are going to attribute that to being a real sustainable problem with the finger where Russell Wilson throws up some duds sometimes. He has some dud games, especially in cold weather. So, well, in rain mostly, but you know, even in cold weather, he's had lots of duds in Green Bay. Well, not lots, but he's had duds in Green Bay before. So I'm interested in this one. I'm going to be rooting for the Seahawks to win this one. I want things to get I'd love, love for them to be in the playoff hunt so we can get a Cable uh, Thanos video going forward there. And I think they're ones that, you know, if you wanted to to dabble in something, have something interesting to watch uh, to, to, to keep you engaged in the game, I do think the Seahawks are interesting as two-and-a-half-point dogs at home against the Arizona Cardinals. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening. Again, use promo code unexpected at pff.com to get a discount on your subscription. Otherwise, I'll be talking to you guys again next week and leave comments in YouTube. I do follow up on them and uh, I like to reply to everyone because you guys have some intelligent things to say. I'm going to say the most intelligent YouTube commenters of any podcast on the planet. Um, All right, I'll be talking at you again and doing the reviews for week 11 on Tuesday. Thanks so much. 